You see, I, I shall never be king. And you, well, you shall never see the light of another day. This is one of my favorite lines from Disney's animated picture, The Lion King, from my childhood. Uh, it is a favorite movie of mine. I find that particular line especially relatable, uh, as I often say to myself in normal conversation, in a perfect world, things would be this way. Or ideally, this would happen. But that's not the reality, is it? Well, the movie The Lion King has a lot of, I think, unintentional biblical uh, truths or themes in it. It begins with a flourishing kingdom that is then thrown into darkness under uh, the rule of Scar, Mufasa's angry brother. And then eventually, the dark kingdom is restored back uh, to a flourishing, thriving land when uh, a prince returns, when Simba returns and establishes order again. Uh, this is very much the narrative of the Bible, uh, of a flourishing land and creation, beautiful as it once was, thrown into the darkness of sin, uh, awaiting the restoration of our Savior, Jesus. But we're caught in between those two realities, aren't we, of the thriving land. I think many of us relate to Scar's line, that life is simply not fair. And so I want to use that sentiment this morning to ask you the question, what is the ideal world in your mind? What does the perfect world look like? If you're a Christian here this morning, what will heaven be like? Are the things that you think would fix this broken world, do they line up with what Scripture has to teach us about heaven? Well, you'll find many of those themes in our text this morning. So go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah 11, we're going to be looking at the first 11 verses this morning. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided underneath the chairs, you can find our passage this morning on page 575 page 575. This is our second week in the book of Isaiah looking at uh, different texts that specifically point towards the advent or the coming of the Messiah. Uh, last week we looked at chapter 9 verses 1 through 7 about the son that would be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, uh, titles that without question refer to God himself and yet at the same time, this king spoken of, this child that would be given, is also the son of David. And to rule on the throne of David. Our passage picks up those same themes as well about the king promised specifically from the family of David. Only in chapter 11, the focus is much more on how the king will rule and what his kingdom will be like in that day. Before we read the passage, it's just important to remember that Isaiah was prophesying in a very dark time in Israel's history. Uh, they're on the verge of being dominated uh, as, as an act of judgment from God by their enemies. Uh, and that exact thing happened to the northern kingdom in uh, 733 B.C. They were put under subjugation of the Assyrians. Uh, and then in 722, they were uh, decimated completely. Well, Isaiah receives the difficult calling from the Lord to deliver that this bad news is coming before it even happens. 
Israel, therefore, on the verge of this great judgment, putting into question whether or not the Lord would ever save his people again, if there would be a remnant, whether or not he would fulfill the promises made to establish an everlasting kingdom. Our passage this morning is yet another word of comfort and promise made to establish that kingdom. That despite the great judgment coming to the people, the Lord will one day provide a king and a nation that will be completely different from every other kingdom of the earth that has ever existed. Let's read our passage together now. Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 10. It says this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea." In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, The structure of this passage, I think, is fairly simple. If you look at the first five verses, you'll find a description of the king that God will provide with details about where he comes from, what he's like and how he will rule. And then in verses 6 through 9, you'll notice the nature of the new kingdom that's described. Uh, It is categorically different uh, than any other kingdom, with Eden-like imagery. And then lastly, in verse 10, we have a summary statement about the relationship of this new kingdom and all other nations on earth, uh, connecting it back to verse 1 with the mention of the root of Jesse. I think that structural breakdown is just the best way to understand the passage. So I'm just going to have two points for you this morning. Uh, First, the righteous king in verses 1 through 5, and then the kingdom of peace in verses 6 through 10. Uh, My prayer for you this morning is that this vision that Isaiah speaks of will cause you to see the coming of Jesus as just the first step towards the realization of that kingdom. And that you will hope all the more in the day that Christ returns to conquer evil and establish his rule forever. So point one, the righteous king, the righteous king in verses one through five. 
Uh, in last week's passage, Isaiah 9, Isaiah used this, this image of light shining into the darkness, uh, that the coming uh, king would be like the dawn of a new day, like the sun rising into the sky. Well, in this passage, the king comes from uh, a very different kind of image, uh, less dramatic, uh, but more precise. Uh, look again at verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Uh, this is a strange statement, and I'll tell you why. But first, who is Jesse? Who is Jesse? Well, Jesse happens to be the father of King David. So before David became king, uh, the Lord sent the prophet Samuel to Jesse's house, and he brought all of his sons in front of him. And David happened to be the last, the eighth, and the youngest son uh, who they took from the fields who was shepherding. And that's where the Lord anointed David to be the future king. But why does Isaiah mention Jesse here in Isaiah 11 instead of just referring to David again like he has in the past? One reason is because the Lord wants to remind us that just like he brought about a king from Jesse before, he will again bring another heir for the throne. And specifically, that this next king would be another David. You see, Isaiah is prophesying during the reign of Ahaz after a long line of bad kings. Uh, and many kings after would continue to be bad kings. Even the good ones, Hezekiah, fall utterly short of what is described in these verses. The language of 1 Samuel 16 indicates the Lord had already chosen David prior to Samuel's arrival. Well, similarly, the Lord had already chosen his Messiah, the future king, even when speaking to Isaiah 700 years prior to the birth of Christ. It's the Lord's way of saying, look, I brought forth a king from this family in the past. I will do it again. When you look at a, a stump of a tree, you typically think, at least I think, that this tree is no longer useful. Uh, it doesn't provide any of the benefits that it once did when it was uh, fully sprouted. There's no shade. Uh, it's not helping us in the air that we're breathing anymore. It certainly does not look pretty. Uh, you know, in fact, at the bottom or at the end of our street here, at the end of Gilmont, uh, there are two palm trees that look like they've just been cut in half around the second story size. Uh, which, of course, is about a, a whole story above the building right in front of it. Uh, awkwardly tall for a stump, uh, I would think. Uh, and I kind of wondered, why didn't they just cut it down even shorter so that we didn't see it? It's kind of an eyesore. It's missing the beautiful palm that we're so used to seeing in front of the blue sky. Uh, but I'm guessing that they left it where it is because uh, if the roots are still in the ground and the stump is still there, then it can continue to regrow and more will come from it. Uh, I think that's basically what is happening here in this passage. Uh, for a time, the tree is cut down. It's not useful. It's not bearing fruit. Uh, it's a bit of an eyesore, perhaps. Uh, but as long as the roots are still intact, uh, it can still grow again. So the Lord will cause the stump of Jesse to bear fruit from the roots that are left inside the ground, though it has been cut down low. In the family tree, uh, the Lord will bring forth a sapling from the stump of Jesse. Uh, this would have been re remarkable hope for Isaiah's audience, knowing that even though the family tree would be cut down from them, 
there remained a stump that the Lord would use to save his people. The source of the Messiah king would come from the same family as Israel's greatest king. And even the domination of other nations would not uproot that hope. If you read chapter 10 just before this one, you'll find in those verses the image that the Lord uses in describing the judgment from the other nations. He describes the other nations like an axe that he will use to cut down the forest. And he says, the trees that will remain will be so few. And with that image in mind, he says this about the stump of Jesse. Well, friends, I think there's an application that we can make into our lives just from that detail alone. Namely, God is sovereignly working in the roots of history to bear fruit. We can't observe the way that he is working. The nutrition that leads to growth in trees happens underneath the surface. Day by day, we may not see that growth happen, but over many years, the tree will grow large and strong. Remember, Jesus used a similar parable like this in Mark 4 to describe the kingdom of God. It is like one who sows seeds, waters them, and then sleeps. It grows, and he knows not how. Well, friends, the Lord is sovereignly working throughout history and even in our individual lives, even if we can't see what he's doing. Trust that the Lord is working in this life and in your life specifically for his good purposes. Well, that's where the king comes from, the family of Jesse. Well, in verse 2, we read what the king is like. It says, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This is the prophet's way of saying that this person will do everything that God would do. He has the wisdom, in fact, of God himself. Therefore, his understanding is the same of God. Last week, I mentioned that those titles, Wonderful Counselor, it does not just simply mean he's a very good counselor. It means he is a spectacle a supernatural counselor, a wonderful counselor. The king is marked by an anointing of the Holy Spirit himself. It's mentioned seven times, uh, this number of completion or wholeness. The Spirit gives perfect knowledge. And that knowledge is not just rote facts. Um, you know, as, a, as an adult now, I've become much more curious about the world than I was when I was uh, younger as a child. I love learning, studying uh, facts that some might think are useless, Uh, but there are so many facts in the world. Uh, There are so many details about how things work and why they work, what their purpose is. And yet, you can study a single field your entire life and still not exhaust all the information from that one particular field. So just think about all of the knowledge that the Lord has to know everything that happens inside the world. He knows all things, and not just things that can be observed physically, but things that cannot be seen or heard or even felt. He knows our hearts, our thoughts, our memories, our feelings, our pain. He has all the wisdom in the world, and he is able to render judgments perfectly. You know, it's one thing to have a lot of knowledge, Uh, or to have a high degree of intelligence. But just because someone is smart doesn't mean that they have good judgment. Uh, Similarly, one can have really good judgment 
and have limited knowledge. Uh, this is the reality of, of, of finite judges in the world today. Uh, they don't always have both things. In fact, they're often lacking in one or the other. But with God, he simultaneously has both. He knows all things, and he judges perfectly according to that knowledge. He knows every possible outcome in our lives and directs each one of our steps. Well, the application for us uh, to this truth is to trust that the Lord has us exactly where he wants us. Uh, trust that where the Lord has you is good and that he's using this particular season in your life, uh, whatever it may be like, for a reason. Uh, for the Christian, uh, it is to make you more like Jesus, ultimately. Uh, lean into that purpose. Uh, don't run away from it. This king has the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. Uh, what does it really mean to fear or to have the fear of the Lord. Uh, you might think of verses like Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Or Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance, and the way of evil, and perfected speech I hate. Another verse for you to write down is Deuteronomy 10.12. After receiving the law... It says this, And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God? And then I think he explains it. To walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. Uh, take these three verses together and it means to live rightly under the rule and the reign of God. It is to obey his commands. It's a correct understanding of what is good and what is evil, what is true in the world. It's a recognition that he is Lord over all things and that he is deserving of all worship and praise. But to live in the fear of the Lord is to recognize he's the most powerful being in the universe and to give all allegiance to him. Finally, to fear the Lord is to serve him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, knowing we'll ultimately give an account of our lives to no one else but Him. One commentator summarized it well by saying that the fear of the Lord is truth grasped and applied to life. Truth grasped and applied to life. Now, the promised king in Isaiah is filled with the Spirit, able to live and to rule in the fear of the Lord perfectly. There's another thing I want you to see about what he's like, and that's the first line of verse 3. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. All the things that we've mentioned about him so far are, uh, are not just things he does. He does not rule in the fear of the Lord because it is his duty to do so, but because it is his delight. Do you see the difference? A true obedience and true fear of God does not just obey out of compulsion, but out of delight. So friends, do you delight in obeying God's commands? Do you see His word or His commands as good for you? Why or why not? In just two verses, Isaiah described where this king comes from and what he's like. And in verses 3 through 5, he describes how this king will rule. 
He will not just judge based on what his eyes see or his ears hear. Have, you, have your eyes ever fooled you? Uh, you see something and you're unsure, and then later you find out that you, uh, you didn't quite see it correctly. Perhaps you saw a video without context, and then later you get the full story. Similarly, have you ever heard something the wrong way? And uh, you're quick to react strongly to whatever it was you misheard, and then you find out, okay, that's not what you said. Never mind. Everything's fine. Those are the kinds of mistakes uh, that the righteous king will not make. Those are the kinds of mistakes that fallen and finite people make. We're easily led astray by what we perceive, but God does not have that problem. He won't judge based on any false or incorrect perceptions. He is the perfect judge, rendering judgments based on accurate knowledge. He's not swayed or directed by emotions like we are. God is not like man that he should lie or repent. His judgments are correct the first time, and they last forever. He's impartial. Uh, That's a great truth that we learned studying Romans 2, verse 6 this past week uh, at the Wednesday Bible study. God will render to each according to his works, meaning he will not wrongly punish someone, nor will he wrongly forgive someone. Uh, The wicked will not be able to mislead God into rendering a false judgment. Uh, The innocent will never be taken advantage of. This means, friends, that if we approach our God with humble hearts, earnestly asking for His forgiveness and demonstrating with our lives that we intend to live under His Lordship, He will never turn us away. If you've kept your distance from God out of fear that He will not accept you, you can be confident that He does not despise a broken and contrite heart. Oh, if you haven't given your life over in submission to God, let me just encourage you to consider doing that even this morning. Uh, turn away from sin and trust in Christ's death and resurrection. And eternal life can be yours forever. Uh, if you have questions about what that might look like for you, I would love to speak with you more after the service about that. And notice the defender of the weak that this king is in verse 4. The righteous, with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Uh, these are the groups that would otherwise be taken advantage of. Uh, the poor and meek are the innocent or the voiceless. They don't have political power. God fairly judges the powerless so as to protect them. I can't help but point out the parallels between this language and what Jesus says during his Sermon on the Mount sermon in Matthew 5. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The king's not only described as compassionate and protective, but as a mighty warrior in verse 5, with righteousness and faithfulness as a belt around his waist and loins. Uh, The loins were basically the lower part of the tunic uh, that extended from the waist down. And in the ancient world, if you needed to run or be active, and specifically, of course, if you were going out to battle, you would have to tie up the bottom, tie up the loins, 
and gird them to your waist with a belt. Uh, This is the kind of imagery that symbolizes action and battle. When the Lord cross-examines Job in Job 40, he tells him to dress like a man. And it turns out it's the same phrase as gird up your loins. He says, dress for action like a man. Isaiah is saying that righteousness and faithfulness allow the king to do all that's required of him. He acts righteously and is faithful to uphold God's righteous decrees. It's interesting that in the New Testament, Paul describes the armor of God and says that the belt of truth is the word of God. This king is acting in all he does to do the word of God. And his word is also his weapon. It only takes breath for this king to defeat his enemies. This reminds me of the way that the wicked are described in Psalm 1. They will perish like chaff in the wind. God's word is so strong that he breathes and his enemies are defeated. In the book of Revelation, Jesus is described as judge and conqueror. And out of his mouth comes a sword. The sword of the Spirit is the word of God in Ephesians 6. A double-edged sword in Hebrews 12. The choice weapon of the Lord is not a physical weapon of war, but his very word that created all things to begin with. I love that line from Luther's hymn that we sang earlier, A Mighty Fortress. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Could you think of a better description of a king? Come from the line of the greatest king in history, anointed with the spirit and wisdom of God, ruling in the fear of God, righteously doing the will of the Father. This king is Jesus who upon his baptism and on the Mount of Transfiguration was anointed publicly by the Holy Spirit. Anointing, by the way, uh, for kings in the ancient world was to symbolize the Spirit of God upon the king, which he would need to rule well. And yet when Jesus comes along, there's no hint that this anointing of the Spirit is symbolic at all. It's what's actually a reality. Jesus' ministry began when he announced that the kingdom of God was at hand with his arrival. It began and continues today until the day of his return. Until he does return, we continue to pray as he instructed, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you see the glory of Jesus in Isaiah 11? Well, that's the righteous king. But what about this kingdom? What will his kingdom be like? That brings me to point two, the kingdom of peace, verses 6 to the end. The kingdom of peace. That's what Isaiah moves on to describe here. Uh, He lists a number of animals dwelling together in a way that we have to admit would never happen today, uh, unless perhaps all the animals were raised together. Uh, But even then, it's a little questionable. Uh, What's being described in these verses is not just a kingdom where people domesticate all the animals. (laughs) Uh, No, the world and everything in it is changed to something new. The world is transformed into an Eden-like kingdom where animals and humans dwell together without any death or any danger. Look again at verses 6 and 7. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, 
and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Uh, these animals are their predator, are predators and their prey. Uh, in order to live, <laughs> the predators have to kill their prey. Uh, but in the new kingdom, there's a new order that matches the created order from the beginning. And namely, that animals are all under the dominion of humanity. And notice that the powerful beasts such as lions and leopards and wolves and cattle, they not only don't hurt each other, but a child can watch over them. They can be led by a little child. No beast will harm man. Oh, this is the description of what heaven will be like under the rule of King Jesus. There's no violence, no thirst for blood. Even among the animals, there's peace. Humanity exercises the dominion that God created Adam and Eve to have, such that even children will lead these fierce beasts with ease. And the predatory animals are changed in their nature uh, to no longer need meat to survive. Bears will graze in the field. Lions eat straw. Uh, This is kind of hard to imagine. Uh, But if our bodies are created from what is, uh, or recreated rather, from what is perishable currently to what is imperishable for the life to come, this is the language of the New Testament, uh, when we are resurrected for eternity, it's certainly not far-fetched to imagine a world in which God changes the stomachs of these animals to consume a different kind of food source. Well, this radical change in animals uh, depicted here, I think, uh, is, a similar, is, is similar to the way that God creates, uh, recreates rather people uh, when they become believers. A, a new nature is given to us who put our trust in Christ. If desiring the flesh and a heart of stone characterize the sinner, the Lord turns hearts of stone to hearts of flesh and fills us with His Spirit, creating a new nature. Those who have been filled with the Spirit no longer desire sinful nature and instead have a new one completely. This is why the disciples of Jesus are called to be a radical community of love for one another because by our sinful nature, we only love ourselves. We don't want to love our neighbor. But the Spirit changes us and leads us to love others as we love ourselves. Jesus commanded that we love others with the same kind of love that He has shown us so that the world would see and experience his love in a visible and tangible way. They'd get a little taste uh, or a visible demonstration of what God is like by watching his people relate to one another. So, brothers and sisters, members of FBC, how are you doing loving others according to your new nature? Do you treat other brothers and sisters as you would if we were all in heaven at this moment around the throne? A life among believers should be for us us a small foretaste of what we'll experience in heaven. The new kingdom is not only free of danger from animals, but free of danger from humans as well. There's no violence, no danger at all. Verse 8 says the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. Uh, That word adder, we think, is just a a word that that means venomous snake. Venomous snake. Uh, Nothing shall hurt or destroy the people in God's kingdom. 
In heaven, there are no threats to safety or health. Isaiah is describing the most helpless humans on the planet. The weaned child. Babies and toddlers, basically. Neither of which have any survival or self-defense skills. I can promise you that. And yet, as vulnerable as they are, they're free from danger. Not even poisonous snakes pose danger. How comfortable would you be placing one of your children right in front of a cobra in this world? That's an outrageous question, I know. That's just to communicate how radically different heaven will be. How free of danger it will be. What Isaiah describes here is much more than just a peaceful kingdom where everyone stays in line. Did you catch the connection from this passage to our scripture reading this morning? A hallmark of the curse of mankind as a result of the fall is articulated in Genesis 3.15. That there would be enmity between the serpent and the woman and their offspring. If we could define the fall, it would be this. The devil rages against mankind and mankind is susceptible to his deceit. Now, This is where sin comes from. But in heaven, the enmity between Eve's offspring and the serpent's offspring is no more. According to Isaiah, the curse of sin will be reversed completely. Sin will be removed and there will be no hostility whatsoever. That's that's the significance of a child playing right in front of a cobra. It's a reversal of the fall. And instead, the whole world is filled with the knowledge of the Lord. Isaiah says, as the waters cover the sea. Let's just take a minute to think about what that means. As the waters cover the sea. Uh, We don't typically just go to the beach and say, look out into the distance. Where's the sea? And you don't respond saying, I can't see the sea because there's too much water in the way of it. The sea and the water are one and the same. Uh, You cannot separate them. So it will be in heaven. It's not as though there's a kingdom in heaven and then other places that the kingdom does not reach. All of heaven is the kingdom. The new heavens and new earth are completely within the domain of the righteous king. And the knowledge of the Lord covers the whole kingdom as the waters cover the sea. Three points of application for you this morning. One of the primary jobs of the church today is to spread the knowledge of Christ throughout the world. And we do this when we, when we make the gospel of Jesus clear to the world. When we preach the forgiveness of sin clearly, and when our lives reflect the fear of God, when we exercise meaningful membership and discipline here in the local church, we tell the world what Jesus is like in the way we live. I pray that as the body of Christ, we would represent him well during this life. An eager longing and hope for heaven should result in meaningful and intentional ministry here on earth. I love what C.S. Lewis said. He said, if you read history, you'll find that Christians who did the most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. Which leads me to the second point of application. Hope in heaven. Hope in heaven. What do you find most difficult about your life right now? 
is it the lack of health? Is it loneliness? Is it a dead-end job? Is it the things of the world that discourage you? Broken relationships, hunger, war, and strife. Whatever you find most difficult about this life, I can assure you it will be removed in heaven, and there will be no more. One way you can uh, hope in heaven is to think of it often and to speculate about what it will be like. Uh, Just yesterday, in the car with my family, uh, our nearly 10-month-old Cassie was making the sweetest baby coo noises, uh, and Kara said, I'm pretty sure that in heaven, there's just going to be these sweet baby coos all over the place. I'm not saying that we should speculate and create things that are not mentioned in the Bible and cling to them, but I mean exercise your curiosity and your longing for what heaven will be like uh, to kindle some kind of excitement for heaven. I do think there is much that is not described about heaven uh, to to engender that kind of longing and, and excitement in the hearts of believers who are anticipating it. So hope in heaven, a daydream about it knowing it'll be more wonderful than what we can think or imagine here on earth. The third point of application, prepare for heaven by pursuing holiness. Prepare for heaven by pursuing holiness. Uh, what, is the, what the Bible describes about heaven, do those things excite you? Does it stir your heart up with anticipation? Is your ideal world similar or different from what the Bible describes? Pursuing holiness prepares us to enjoy what is most holy. It prepares our hearts to let go of the things of the world and makes us fit to enjoy the blessedness of our Savior fully. J.C. Ryle said it this way. He said, we must be holy because without holiness on earth, we will never be prepared to enjoy heaven. I do not know what others may think, but to me, it does seem clear that heaven would be a miserable place to an unholy man. It cannot be otherwise. The kingdom of peace is ruled by the righteous king, which is a signal for all the nations in verse 10, a banner for the people to come. Could the righteous king described in this passage really be Jesus, you might be wondering. Certainly he was a remarkable man, But how can he be the the same as the one who is described here uh, with his death and all? Listen to the way Luke describes the birth of Jesus from Luke 2. And Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. 
You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Well, that baby, Jesus, grew. And in John 3, Jesus said that like the serpent in the wilderness, he would need to be lifted up as a sign to the people. And that was in reference to a bronze serpent that Moses lifted up to save the people from death. Whoever looked at the serpent lived. God raised Christ up just as he said he would lift the Son of Man up as a signal or banner for the people. So that anyone who looked up at him on the cross, believing in him and confessing him, Lord, they would be saved for eternity. Jesus calls people from all nations everywhere to believe in him and be saved. The reason we don't live in an ideal world is because sin entered the world. It's because God is a righteous judge that the world was put under a curse because of its sin. But to believe in Jesus is to trust in the only person who can actually remove that curse from us. He's the only person who can justly acquit us. And the forgiveness we experience in this life points forward to the day he returns when all evil will be tramped out for good. Until then, he has established his church, his people, to be an outpost of his kingdom here on earth, to teach his word and to make disciples so that the knowledge of God would be made known among many until the day he calls us home. As we approach the celebration of the incarnation, of Christ's coming to us, remember that his birth marks the beginning of the realization of these promises in Isaiah 11. And that for those who believe in him, it is the promise that we will see this day, the promise and guarantee that we will see the promises fulfilled in that day. The day that the lion and the calf will graze together. Christians, pray that that day would come soon. Let's pray.